The title of today's sermon is Snowflakes, and it's taken from Matthew 26, verses 1 through 16. Would you bow with me? Let us ask God to teach us and direct us this morning. Father, we are so grateful for the opportunity to gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ, like-minded, because we know the scriptures. Guide us, direct us, lead us, teach us through the Holy Spirit as we study this important text this morning from the book of Matthew. May our lives be impacted by what we read, hear, and you show us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Snowflakes. That is a term which is being applied to the current generation of young people. Why do they call this generation snowflakes? Most of us have no idea as to what it means. I, I certainly couldn't have defined it for you. So I went and looked at the Internet Dictionary. I assumed by the context that it implied the current generation of millennials are, those that we have birthed and raised, by the way, are a bit fragile. However, I was unsure of its exact meaning. The the dictionary defined it as being a metaphorical use of the term snowflakes to describe a type of young person that gets easily upset and offended by the opinion of others. I do think our younger generation today does get easily upset over many things. Watch this job interview. Amy, it says you are trained in technology. That's very good. Are you adept at Excel? No. PowerPoint? No. Publisher? Not really. Exactly in what area of technology Mm -hmm. are you proficient? (laughs) Snapchat, Pinterest, Instagram, Vine, Twitter. You know, the big ones. I'm surprised you didn't say Facebook. (laughs) (laughs) That's for old people, like my parents. (laughs) That's funny. Well, Amy, when you're working for me, you have to have those kind of research skills because I'll send you things for you to comb through and get the answers and send them to me. So for that, you've got to be really good at technology. For stuff like that, no problem. I'll just ask Siri. You'll just ask Siri? You know, Siri, tell me this. Siri, find me that. We're all good getting you the answers. Tell Siri I want you ready to go at 8, sharp, each and every morning. I don't understand. What don't you understand? What you just said. You don't understand be ready to go? No. You said 8, right? Yes. Eight, like, in the morning, eight? Yes, in the morning. Yeah. That kind of doesn't work for me. Who gets up at eight? I do. I Skype with my French boyfriend in Paris until, like, three in the morning. I don't even get to Starbucks until, like, ten, where I order my grande chai tea latte, three pumps, skim milk, light water, 2% foam, extra hot, but not too hot. So if it's okay, I work best in the morning at 1045. (laughs) Wow. Amy, I don't think we're going to be a good fit. Why are you so negative? 
I can sense your hostilities and right now I am not feeling very safe. I've been here for over five minutes and the only nice thing you have said to me was nice resume, which I typed all night for this meeting with you. You've given me no guidance, no validation, no encouragement, no supervision. Is there an HR director somewhere? HR director? Yes, I need to speak to someone. I may have to take off today as a mental health day. Take today off? you, Amy, Amy, look at me. You don't work here. Are you firing me? Okay, yes. Millennials, they don't like manual labor. Non-Starbucks coffee, Donald Trump, or having to pay back the monies they borrowed to get a worthless degree. That really upsets them. I mean, after all, how, how can you use a degree about women's studies, gender studies, black and Asian studies, environmental studies, dance, exercise studies, puppetry, music, art therapy, Islamic studies, and of course, LGBTQRSV studies. <laughs> but this is not the first time snowflakes has been applicable to a group of people. I think this can be applied to the disciples of Jesus at times. We'll see this when we see that they get upset over some really dumb stuff in our text this morning. Now, as you know, the Gospels' records reveal the events that transpired in the life of Jesus Christ. These are not stories, nor are they myths that are made up to tell us about God. These are actual events. Let me warn you that the Gospels are not biographies, as you might have been told and taught. Rather, they are clearly written treaties by each of these individual writers with a very specific purpose in mind. There are four different authors and four different purposes in the way that they arrange the material of the events in Jesus' life to explain him from their own unique point of view and that of their audiences. Matthew is writing from a Jewish experience to a Jewish audience. This explains why all four gospel writers give more attention to specific details but then they all do focus on the last week of Jesus' life, not the first 30 years. Proportionately, the last week of Jesus' life, the so-called Passion Week, which we enter into study now, gets the most attention of all in the Gospels. Let me remind you of where we've been recently in the book of Matthew. We've been examining for the past several weeks the Olivet Discourse, which is found in Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus was asked by his four disciples that were there three very specific questions about the end times from a Jewish perspective. We found those questions in Matthew 24, verse 3, where they ask, When will these things be, considering the end times? What shall be the sign of your coming, and what shall be the sign of the end of the age? The Lord took two chapters to answer those three questions. You'll recall that uh, he began in verse 4 of Matthew 24 and went through verse 31 where he talked about the signs of the coming 
of the end of the age. And then in Matthew 24, verse 32, through Matthew 25, verse 30, the Lord applied what he had just taught to a future generation of Jews who would live during what we call the tribulation. That is, of course, the seven years that occur just before the return of Jesus Christ at his second coming. Now, last week, at the end of chapter 25, Jesus explained what happened to those who live during the seven years of tribulation, the Jewish generation and the rest of people on the earth as they enter into the millennial kingdom. As you know, they will face the judgment of God. The Olivet Discourse, however, is just one piece of the end-time puzzle. There are many other scriptures, Old Testament and New, which deal with the end times. For one to have a complete understanding of these events, we would need to study all the relevant passages in Scripture. Now, having answered the three questions about Israel's future generation of far off, Jesus immediately pivots, transitions into speaking about his immediate future. Matthew records this transition from prophecy to the Passion Week in the text that we look at this morning. As we all know, Jesus will be crucified, be buried, and be resurrected during the Passion Week. The whole Passion Week begins with this terrible bargain, a terrible bargain between one of his disciples and the religious elites. However, sandwiched between the description of this event is a wonderful act of worship in which the Lord of glory receives a wonderful tribute of love from an unnamed woman. We begin with a transition from the Olivet Discourse to his Passion Week in verse 1. Looking with me on page 988 of the Pew Bible, if you need to use that, or Matthew 26, beginning with verse 1, we read, When Jesus had finished all of these words, he said to his disciples. You know, change is always difficult for people. Here the disciples are dealing with great change. Notice, first of all, the word when. That shows us that a new topic is being introduced. This is a transitional phrase that Jesus is telling them that he's moving on to new business. The teaching time is over and it's time to move on. When is being used adverbally, in other words, about the timing of this new direction that his life is going to take. Jesus indicates that the teaching session that he just held on the Mount of Olives is over when he uses the word all. He said, everything that I need to say, all that I need to say is done, and I'm moving on now from the subject of the end times. Notice that the audience being spoken to in this text is the twelve and not a larger crowd of the multitudes as we often see Jesus speaking to. He continues saying to the twelve, to his disciples, you know. Why do they know? Because he has told this on at least four other occasions. You know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. Wow, great news, Jesus. Here we have another indicator of time. A time indicator is after two days, the Passover is coming. 
Many will just pass by those words quickly. They don't register, but it's very significant information to understanding the timing of the Passion Week. In two days, the Jews will celebrate the Feast of the Passover. And we know that the Passover takes place on Saturday. However, an understanding of the Jewish calendar tells us that Passover doesn't actually begin on our Saturday, but begins on Friday at sundown. That means that when Jesus is speaking to them, it is Wednesday. The Passover of the feast on the Jewish calendar celebrates Israel's redemption, Israel's exodus from the horrors of Egypt. The Passover received this name because it comes from the Hebrew word, which describes the act of the death angel passing over the homes that had had the blood of the lamb applied to their lentils of their house, the front door. The, the root word for Passover comes from the Hebrew term pisach, P-E-S-A-C-H, and it is translated in English as paschal. That is where we get our concept, our understanding, our word passion, the Passion Week, the Passover Week, if you will. Now, in this verse that we've just read, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. And as you know, that's his favorite designation of himself in prophetic words, prophetic teaching. And it emanates from the book of Daniel, which, of course, is about the end times. Here it says, during the Passover, he will be handed over for crucifixion. The Greek word that's used there is paradidomai, and it's translated as handed over here in the New American Standard, delivered up in some translations, or betrayed in others. The better understanding of it is as being handed over or delivered up. It was written in the present tense. Jesus spoke this in the present tense, so it describes a process that is already taking place. The handing over is in process. Now, as you know, the Passover is one day, and that's followed by an eight-day feast, which is called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They're currently uh, enjoying that in Israel right now, or Sukkoth. The Jews at that time and today would flock to Jerusalem to keep the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread because it was required by the law of Moses. The Passover is when the Jewish people as I said, remember the events of their deliverance from captivity in Egypt. They were required on the Passover to bring a lamb to the temple to be sacrificed for their personal and their family's sins. The Passover then will become for us today a picture of Jesus' being crucified. And notice it says that he's going to be handed over for crucifixion. Just as the lambs were handed over by the families to the priests to be killed. When we hear the word crucifixion, of course, in Christian circles and churches, we're used to hearing that, and it doesn't shock us any longer. But that word certainly had its impact on the hearers. The disciples would have been knocked for a loop when they heard that he was going to be crucified. That was the cruelest, most painful, and degrading way for a human being to die. However, the twelve had been warned, as I said, four times 
by Jesus that this was going to be his fate. Again, this word is written in the present tense, which ties it directly to the event of the Passover. Jesus is saying he's going to be handed over for crucifixion right now during the Passover. They would see the real meaning of Passover when Jesus becomes the Paschal Lamb once and forever. Now, what the Jews did at the temple complex was merely a shadow a picture, a figure, or as some like to call it, a type of sacrifice of the ultimate Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. All of this reveals to his disciples that his death is impending, and it underscores the plan of God rather than the impulses of man. Here we see the intrigue the plan of the cabal to derail Judge Kavanaugh's appointment to the Supreme Court. I'm sorry. I mean the religious elites of Israel trying to rid themselves of the problem of Jesus. Now, in verse 3, we have the word then, another indicator of time movement. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest and named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus, get this, by stealth and kill him. This bunch of religious yuhas didn't gather publicly, but caucused together in the inner sanctum of the Capitol building in order to make their plans to kill Kevin. Oh, there I go again, I'm sorry. I mean Jesus. The cabal consisted of the high priests and some Levitical priests and the elders that were present in Jerusalem. The current high priest is named for us, Caiaphas, and he was heading up this subcommittee of the Sanhedrin. They've gathered in his courtroom in his inner sanctum to discuss the terms of the death of Jesus. Caiaphas, as you know, was required to be a Sadducee, and he was also appointed by the Romans to his position way back in A.D. 18. Then we have some of the priests, Levitical priests, and we have some elders gathered here, and I was wondering if, as I read that, did you notice what group is missing? Yes, the biggest antagonizers of Jesus, the Pharisees, are not mentioned. Why? I don't know. But maybe they didn't have the stomach for murder. Who knows? But this small cabal of the elites, including those who are not afraid to murder, gather together at the palace of the high priest, their safe space. Notice the wording here that the decision to murder Jesus had already been made. They had decided to kill him. So from that day on, they planned together, says John in his book, to kill Jesus. That was the strategy all along when they got together. There was no debate, no arguments, They just needed to get rid of him. We need to rid ourselves of this nuisance. They had the motive, the means, and now they needed the opportunity to do the dirty deed. 
But this job could not be done in the open. So they had to find a way by stealth and treachery to accomplish it. Now, the Greek word that's used here and translated as stealth in the New American Standard is doulos, D-O-L-O-S. Not to, but stealth. It carries the idea of deviousness and cunning. Like our stealth fighters that can't be detected by radar, they sought an opportunity to do their dirty deed in isolation. Now, the religious elites knew they couldn't defeat Jesus in argument or logic. Therefore, force was the only answer. But they had to be tricky. Why would they do this? Let me suggest to you that it's because they were jealous of Jesus' fame and because of fear of Jesus' power. They didn't like his popularity, and so they didn't want his presence amongst them. They were cunning in their plan, for they said in verse 5 to one another, not during the feast. We can't do this deed during the feast. Otherwise, a riot might occur among the people. This had to be done at just the right moment in time. But not during the festival when the people were present. That can't be. No way. How would it be if we had Jesus arrested in the front of all of his supporters from the Galilee? That would really be a dumb move. Let's not do that. So the Passover, as you know, required all Jewish men to come to Jerusalem, and the city would swell. Some say to two million occupants, five times its normal size. That caused the Romans to bring in extra security. The 10th Roman legion swelled in size during the Jewish feast. So if they attempted to take Jesus in front of this huge crowd, they could upset them, and they'd have a riot on their hand, and the Romans would use this as an opportunity to kill as many zealots as they could possibly find. The elites didn't want that. They wanted to do this when the people weren't around. It would be best, they thought, if they waited for all of the people to go home, for Jerusalem to quiet down before they quietly took Jesus and did their deed. This was man's plans, but not God's. Their timetable would be forced to move faster by an accuser named Christine Blasey Ford. I'm sorry. I've just heard this stuff so much this week, I just can't get it out of my thinking. I mean Judas Iscariot. He volunteers to come and hand over Jesus to the authorities. The fix was in! But they were totally wrong. Their plans and their timetable was about to blow up in their faces. Why is that? God had fixed the time of Jesus' death in eternity past. This was not by accident. This was under the will of God and his sovereignty. So despite all of their well-laid plans... It was the purposes and will of God that was going to be done. Jesus would die on the Passover as the true Passover lamb because that was God's will. This dramatic shift in the narrative that we're seeing here is when religious men get together and decide to kill an innocent man, but that would drastically change. The next event we look at stands in stark contrast to this. We're going to put that on hold for a minute because the narrative does. We're going to go to another place. This event that's inserted in the middle of the details of Jesus' death, the plans for it, 
record, records for us the anointing of Jesus as the Passover or Paschal Lamb. Some, when they look at this text, see this as a repeat of Jesus' anointing in the past, in previous texts. In another account, Jesus' feet was anointed, as you might know. But that anointing took place six days before the Passover. Now you understand why timing is so critical and important? This account that we're looking at now took, two days, took place two days before the Passover. One might suggest, as many liberal theologians do, that this was just an error in the translation of Scripture, a copyist error. Maybe you yourself have wondered about these events, and you've seen a conflict arise in your own heart and mind. However, if you read them closely, you will not see that there are only differences in the days that it happened, but there are differences in the women and differences in the places these occur. So let me try to explain to you why there's no conflict here between this event recorded by Matthew and Luke and John and between another event recorded by Luke. As I said, Bible scholars uh, see these as the same or different events, depending on which scholar you read. Those who see these as the same event believe the Bible is errant. But on closer inspection, I hope you will see that that is not true at all. While both events do have similarities, Jesus is being anointed with oil, and this occurs just in the days before his crucifixion, they are not the same. So we must ask, if this is not an error, then what's the significance between the two anointings? Well, let's examine the two accounts in order to see the answer to that. Again, we see that there is really that these are going to be really two different events with two different homes, two different women, two different body parts, and for two different purposes. In John chapter 12, we read of the first event, which occurs on, on the sixth day before the Passover. There it says, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom he had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving. But Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of her perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? Now, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief and he had the money box, which he used to pilfer, which, was, which that was put into it. Therefore, Jesus said, Let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you will always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. The large crowd of Jews that learned that he was there And they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death. Because of account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Here, John tells us that Martha not only served the dinner in which her brother, now alive, enjoyed 
along with other guests, but Mary appears as the one sitting at the feet of Jesus and pouring this expensive vial of oil onto his feet. Onto his feet. As an aside, let me share with you, this is completely separate from the text, but let me share this with you. Mary appears three times in the Gospel accounts. Each time Mary is shown, she's at the Lord's feet. First, in Luke chapter 10, Mary described, is described as sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning, while her sister is off angry because she's stuck serving the whole meal by herself. Now, in John chapter 11, Mary is again pictured at Jesus' feet. But this time, she's crying over the death of her brother. She's thrown herself at his feet. And then again, in John, Mary, that a passage I just read for you, is at the feet of Jesus, worshiping him and anointing his feet with oil and wiping them with her hair. No doubt, Mary is a spiritual woman, a godly woman. She finds her needs met, where? At Jesus' feet. Now, back to our text in Matthew, uh, we see that it is similar to the event I just read from you, from um, Mark. Mark speaks of another anointing, Mark chapter 14, just as Matthew does, which is different from John's. This one occurs two days before the Passover rather than six days. Mark chapter 14 and Matthew 26 speak of the same event. So when we compare Matthew and Mark with John, we see a complete difference in place, time, and participants. So, now, Mark writes in chapter 14, Now the Passover and the unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival, sounds just like Matthew, doesn't it? Not during the festival, which otherwise a riot might break out. And while he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, completely different than the other account, reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial, a very costly perfume of pure nard, and she broke the vial and poured it over his head. But some were indignant, remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and money given to the poor. And they were scolding her, but Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a great deed to me. You will always have the poor with you. Whenever you wish, you can do good to them, but you do not always have me with you. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached, in the whole world, this woman has done what this woman has done will be spoken of in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him. They were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money, and he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. Very similar to the text that we're going to see in Matthew 26 that you're open to. The question that arises from these accounts is why is there a difference between Matthew and Mark's account and John's? All three seem to be similar. One of the similarities that we find in both accounts is the perfume. This perfume, or, or nard, as it's called, is from India. And it is a uh, blending of flowers uh, and their scents together. 
And this is what is taken and poured on Jesus' feet in one account and in the, on his head in the others. This, there is a subtle but significant distant difference here between his head and his feet. Another of the similarities that many observers are not happy about uh, of this event was the expense of the perfume. As we read, it was worth 300 denaria, or a year's labor by a common uh, worker. The excuse was not to do this was that they should sell the oil instead of pouring it on Jesus' feet or head and, and sell it so that the money could be given to the poor. In both accounts, similarly, the woman spoken to is rebuked. In all the accounts, Jesus chides them and tells them to leave the woman alone. In all accounts, Jesus states that the poor will always be around, but he will not be. Jesus then states the purpose of both of the anointings. This is where it gets important. So if you've been sleeping up to this point, wake up. Both of these anointings were the preparation of his body for his burial. So why the differences? I believe the answer to this seeming conflict, that they're the same event with uh, just copyist errors, or the two significant events that differ from one another, can be explained by Jewish culture and practice. Any Jew who hears this passage would recognize the obvious, but... We don't, because we don't live in that culture. They knew that at this time, those who came to a home as a guest were greeted at the door with a bowl of water, which was meant to wash their feet. As you know, traveling through Israel, any town or or dusty back road, your feet got dirty. And so the host would provide water. And into that water, normally two drops of perfume would be put so that the water would have a pleasant smell. You don't want to have stinky feet, right? However, the rabbis of the day in the Talmud commanded that the oil not be wasted, so only two drops of it could be used for guests. The rabbis argued that to use more was a waste, very important, a waste and not God's will. But Jesus says that it's not a waste because... The anointing of the oil is used to prepare his body for his coming death. This was an act of worship and mourning of the Lord Jesus by both women. Literally, these women were preparing his body for burial, something that would not be done, as you remember from the biblical account, after his death. So this is not an act of celebration, but one of mourning. This harmonizes quite well with not only the teaching of the law, the practice of the Jews and their customs, but also, surprisingly, even the instructions by the Talmud. But more importantly, it's a figure that speaks of the Passover lamb that would be sacrificed on the Passover. The lamb was chosen by the family six days before the Passover. The family then had five days in which to look it over, to love it, to grow in appreciation of it, and to inspect it. It became part of their family, literally, as they loved it, examined its legs and ankles and feet for blemishes. You see, the lower part of a lamb or animal would oftentimes be susceptible to injury on the rocky 
hillsides of Israel. The family then on that first day would take oil and rub it onto the feet, ankles of the sacrificial lamb. Just as Mary did six days before the Passover when she took out her oil and rubbed it on the feet of Jesus and dried it with her hair. That would be consistent with a first anointing of the sacrificial lamb. That was followed up two days before the Passover with another anointing by the Jewish family. This time, the lamb was taken by the family and prayed over it. They'd put their hands on the head of the lamb and pray that their sins would be passed into the lamb and that it would be sacrificed and die for their sins. And then oil was poured upon its head as the family prayed and worshipped God Almighty. This sacrificial lamb was then taken on the Passover to die for their sins. It would cover them for one year. The lamb had to be without blemish or spot. That would have been the second anointing of the Passover lamb and of Jesus. This anticipates the sacrifice that Jesus Christ makes on the cross of Calvary for the sins of humankind. Jesus was without blemish, spot, or sin, and he was the final paschal lamb. Now let's return to our examination of Matthew's account of this, what I believe is the second anointing of Jesus as the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. As we noted, Jesus and his entourage was going to Jerusalem every day, and they would return to Bethany each night to, um, to stay overnight and eat. The twelve believed that they had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, which they would. But they weren't really clear on the rest of the things that would take place during this following week. In verse 6, we read, which takes place again on Wednesday evening, in Bethany... At the home of Simon the leper, notice a completely different place, a woman, unnamed, came to Jesus with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. As you know, Bethany is two miles from the city of Jerusalem. It lies near a ridge, the Mount of Olives, which overlooks the temple. Here we have an unbelievable act of worship of selfless worship taking place by an unknown woman. Notice, Mary is not named. The home is not Mary, Martha, and Lazarus's home, but it is the home of Simon the leper. Now, almost all biblical scholars agree that Simon must have been cured at some point in time by Jesus. Otherwise, people would never have been able, people would never have been able to gather at his home for dinner. He would have been unclean. They also suggest that he must have been a well-heeled resident of Bethany, maybe a wealthy businessman. He's able to feed all of these people. He had been cured of leprosy, and so people were still able to come to his home. And yet he was stuck with this horrible nickname, Simon the Leper. Suddenly, out of nowhere, an unnamed woman enters into the room in which all of the gathered are eating, and they watch as she walks over, sits by him, and begins to pour oil over his head. Wow! Can you imagine what people were thinking? Who is this woman? And what a mess she is making! Nevertheless, 
As she pours the oil, the smell fills the whole house with a pleasant aroma. Such oil was used in droplets, as I mentioned, um, in the honoring of guests in the water to clean their feet. But here she pours out the entire contents of the vial on Jesus' head. Wow, what an act of worship. This oil was worth a year's salary for the average common laborer. In Lacey, that would be about 60K, right, right, bud? In Mark's account, we also read that this woman is unnamed. So in both Matthew and Mark, she's unnamed. So we should never confuse her with Mary in the previous account or in the account that Luke mentions, you'll recall, in which a prostitute came into him while he was at Capernaum, remember, and anointed him with oil in chapter 7. So in this account and in Mark's account, the woman is unidentified. This is not Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Now, some have suggested that this unnamed woman, and I, and I tend to agree with this, probably uses her marriage dowry to anoint Jesus' head. She had this vial, which was worth a year's salary, and she takes it, which was meant for her marriage, which maybe she was too old for it now, whatever, and she pours it on top of his head, preparing his body for burial. Anointing such as this, we've seen this before in Scripture. Remember, David was anointed by Samuel. This anointing was either done for kings or important positions, or it was done to the body of those who were important who had passed away. This woman takes her vial, breaks it, making it no longer usable because it was unsealable once it was broken, and she pours it over the crown of Jesus' head. And in verse 8, we see the reaction of the twelve to this event. Look there with me. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this. Why this waste? Notice that it's made clear that all of the disciples were involved in this indignancy. We know this is so because there's a plural S on the end of disciples. They were all indignant, angry, and outraged, just as we saw back in John chapter 12. But we learn there that one of the twelve leads this indignant response. I bet you can guess his name. Yes, we saw it in the video. Judas Iscariot. This anger, I believe, is just a snapshot into the hearts and the minds of the snowflake disciples at this moment in time. But it begins with, as, and is encouraged by one person, and the infection spreads to the other. I can imagine what they were thinking, but they did not say when they saw this, and Judas opened his mouth to question it. Wow, it's a waste of money. You see, the important point is the others didn't understand or know the evil character of Judas. So they joined in with his criticism of this woman who makes this great sacrifice to worship the Lord and anoint his body. They wrongly considered themselves to be the spiritual leaders, and yet they were willing to join in Judas's criticism and his attack upon this woman. But we know the real reason that Judas did this, don't we? We know what issue he had. He would have taken that vial from the woman as an offering unto Jesus and gone and sold it and then pocketed the cash. He was, 
as we read in John's account, the designated holder of the purse, the monies that were given to Jesus. He had unfettered access to the group's monies. John tells us Judas often helped himself to it. Since he had the money box, he used to pilfer it and that which was put into it. There it is. He stole from all the others. And he wasn't even elected to Congress. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) Judas states in verse 9, For this perfume might have been sold for a higher price and given to the poor. Same thing as in the other account. It was the custom, this this comes from the custom that was practiced at Passover in which people gave money to the temple to help the poor for the purpose of purchasing a lamb which they could not afford. So, let me apply this to our lives, to the church today, and to our attitudes about possessions and money. It's quite possible for sincere believers to have the same unbalanced value system that we are seeing here in this text. We begin to regard worldly possessions as our own, more valuable than our Lord. Part of true worship is giving to him what others may see as a waste. The concern that these men had for the poor was really nothing more than a sham, in my view. If nothing else, it reveals their unquestionably wrong priorities. For they never took time to consider that this act of worship by this woman was to a specific object, the Lord Jesus Christ. They have failed to appreciate that Jesus was in their midst and that he wouldn't be there too much longer. Jesus deserves our extravagant worship. He is our Savior and our Lord. Now the Lord gives them a correction. Their correction can be seen in verse 10. Jesus, being aware of all this, said to them, Why do you bother this woman? For she has done a good deed to me. Very important. He states, your priorities are out of whack and they need to be changed. Why are you hassling this lady who's doing exactly the right thing? She's worshiping me and she's done unto me a good deed or a good work. There it is. There it is. There it is. Our good works must always be done unto Jesus as an act of worship. Do I need to yell louder? Those who truly love Jesus Christ will do everything for him. Our good works are not done for the church. Are you guys here this morning? Our good works are not done for this church. Our good works are not done for other people. Our good works are done unto him, not the rotten pastor. Now she starts with the amens. Hmm. All our good works are to be done for Jesus Christ. When you give your money, you're not giving it to Lacey Chapel. You're giving it to Jesus Christ. When you serve in a ministry, you're not serving the pastor or the elders. You're serving Jesus Christ. When you help a little old lady across the street, the proper motivation should be to do it for Jesus as unto him. And if you don't, 
If you do it for some other reason, you will lose all of your rewards. Wrong motives leads to loss of reward. All good works are the overflow of our worship of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. What he tells the disciples here next is really important. To the role and function of the church today. Jesus says to them, for you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. If anyone should have understood this, if anyone should have gotten this, it should have been the disciples. They'd spent over three years walking around Israel with Jesus. And yet they were still harboring wrong priorities in their hearts and minds. They lacked the spiritual insight to make the right choice here. Today, we have the poor with us in our community. Part of the spiritual life is serving others as unto the Lord. We must have a proper understanding and concern for the poor. But you see, the disciples' problem was a problem of timing. They would have many opportunities to help the poor amongst them, but only a small opportunity to witness, the, to worship the Lord. Sunday mornings is not the time to help the poor. When you have a responsibility of ministry, that's not the time to help the poor. Now, obviously, you need to be flexible in emergencies. That's granted. You will have many opportunities, but you'll only have a few specific opportunities to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. The reason for their lack of future opportunity, as we saw, was presently in motion. In verse 12, Jesus says, For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. This was an act of memorial to Jesus. That's what we do every first Sunday of the month when we gather here and celebrate the Lord's table. An act of memorial to Jesus. As I stated earlier, after a person died, his body was prepared for burial and he was anointed with perfume and a burial shroud. Then the next morning, people would come and they would pour perfume on his body so that the odors of decomposition were kept down. You see, many tombs were found in public places. You could walk by them. And they weren't airtight, so if there was a decomposing body in there, it would smell to high heaven. So, perfume was used. However, criminals that were executed, their bodies were not buried in tombs or in graves. They were taken to the town dump and thrown in to the burning garbage that was left there. In Jerusalem's case, this was the Hinnom Valley. It burned with fire. Gehenna, the Hinnom Valley. So, Jesus evaluates this act of worship by this unnamed woman in verse 13. He says, truly, I say unto you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. And as you know, this event is being preached here this morning. I'm sure it's being preached in other pulpits around the globe, if not today, sometime in the near future or in the past. This woman's worship is celebrated as a selfless act of worship of the Savior that we can emulate, imitate, I should say. The expensive oil... Perhaps her dowry, as I have suggested, was used without any recourse in the worship of Jesus Christ. 
What might seem to some to be a reckless act, a senseless act, was really a sign of her devotion to him. How else can we explain Jesus' extolling of her actions? This stands in sharp contrast with the rebuke by Judas and the disciples. It's also evident that this caused Judas to question if Jesus was truly the Messiah. Now, whenever there is the gospel shared, this woman's actions are preached and goes forth. Judas would have seen this stinging rebuke by Jesus to him as an insult. Maybe that's what caused this impetus for what we're going to see he does in the next few verses when he goes and turns Jesus over, hands over Jesus to the religious elites. The unconverted mind of Judas probably viewed Jesus at this point with disdain. It was, what did he call it? A waste. It was a waste. It was a waste. But what did Jesus say? It was a lasting tribute or memorial unto him. Before I move on, did you notice that Jesus calls this and anticipates this as part of the worldwide preaching of the gospel? Well, the question is, what gospel? I think that's explained by the Greek word cosmos, which means globe or whole world. He could have used the Greek term oikoneme, which points to a small area, but here it's the entire globe. What gospel is this? This is not your father's Jewish gospel of the kingdom. No, this is the gospel of grace that will be preached to the whole world of Jesus' what? Passion. His death, burial, and resurrection. So this is a prophecy of Jesus of the coming change of the gospel of grace being sent to the Gentiles. So what's the deeper morning, deeper morning, deeper meaning of this anointing of Jesus? Hopefully you can recall back in chapter 3 of Matthew. I know that was a long time ago. I know some of you are old. I am. But you can remember when Jesus came to be baptized, he was anointed by the Holy Spirit who descended from heaven and landed upon him. He rested upon him. The anointing of the Spirit came to prepare Jesus for what? His public ministry. The second anointing by this unnamed woman comes to prepare him for his death. His death. The first anointing prepared him for the work of his life, and the second anointing prepared him for the work of in his death. Now, let's turn a page back to where we were earlier in this passage. Here, Matthew nicely juxtaposes this act of worship by an unnamed woman with the betrayal of Jesus by a known disciple, Judas. Beginning in verse 14, we find this intentional act by Judas. Compared with the intentional act of worship, we have here the intent intentional act of denying and rejecting Jesus as the promised Messiah. Look with me in verse 14. Then one of the twelve named Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest and said, what are you willing to give me to betray him to you? Here we see the enormity of Judas's rejection of Christ. Notice that Judas went Notice that he willingly went. He wasn't subpoenaed by the Senate to come and testify or test a lie before the world. 
No, Judas went on his own accord, despite the fact that he held a privileged position as one of the twelve. He was a member of Jesus' inner circle, but that didn't matter one hoot to him. Why not? Because Judas was a phony. He was simply playing the game. All the observers of his behavior, however, would have considered Judas to be a man of integrity. Otherwise, they never would have entrusted him with the money bag. But Judas couldn't control his greed, as we know from John. He was taking whatever he wanted out of that money bag. And now he's seeking more money. He's willing to be <coughs> excuse me, disloyal, hateful, based on the circumstances. When Mueller came and put the squeeze on him, he was ready to squeal like a pig to save his own skin. He could see which way the wind was blowing. He's going to turn on Jesus. Why not enrich yourself, he thought to himself at the same time. After all, he was, by nature, a thief. Let me say this. The liberals always state that evil people can be rehabilitated, right? Jail is a place for rehabilitation and not punishment. They argue that every criminal has a spark of good within them. My dear ones, that is a bunch of hooey. The Bible contradicts that completely. It says that man is not good, but that man is totally sinful. We are sinners separated from a holy God. That's who we are. We are alienated from God by our sin nature. It's only when we trust in Christ Jesus that a new nature is implanted within us that gives us the new capacity to do good works. Look what Jesus said about Judas in verse John chapter 6 and verse 7. Don't turn there, I'll just read it for you. John chapter 6, verse 7, if you want to write it down. Did I myself, Jesus, has not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? There it is. Judas was simply a tool, a stooge used by the devil. Listen now, there are many stooges within the church today. They are used by the devil to cause disharmony and discontent amongst God's people. Judas stealthily worked with the evil power brokers of his day to hand over Jesus at just the right time and location according to God's will. We see that these evil men eagerly agreed to the deal in verse 15b. They weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him. Why did Judas offer to cooperate with them? Why does anyone cooperate with evil? Because they're getting something out of it, that's why. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament... We've seen this exchange of 30 silver pieces or coins or however you want to describe it. It should be familiar to us. That was the exact price paid to pay off the death, accidental death of a slave. In Exodus chapter 21, we read that if an ox gores a slave, the owner shall give his master 30 shekels of silver. And more to the point, in Zechariah chapter 11 and verse 12, we read, I said to them, it is good in your sight. Give me my wages. If not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver 
as my wages. There is the exact amount paid for rejecting the shepherd, and here now it's applied to the rejection of the Messiah. Predicted beforehand. Now, I don't know if this was a good deal for Judas or not. I don't know exactly how much 30 pieces of silver weighed at that time. It's not given to us, but it was equal to that which was paid for the death of a slave and to the handing over of a shepherd in Zechariah's time. This is the price of a dead slave. That's what was paid Judas for the life of Jesus. All of Matthew's Jewish readers would have instantly recognized this from the law. They would have known that 30 pieces of silver is what was paid for the death of a slave accidentally. Now let me note this for you. The unnamed woman was willing no, anxious to pour out her wealth for Jesus while Judas was willing to deceive and cause his death for a few lousy bucks. The evil one found a willing tool in Judas. You see, after all, this was Satan's idea from the get-go. He simply suggested and put this into the mind of Judas. Back in John 13, we read of this. That during the supper, when Jesus was washing the disciples' feet, do you recall that? John 13, the devil having already put into Judas Iscariot's heart the son of Simon to betray him, that is Jesus. Then a little bit later in that same scene, the Last Supper, we read that Judas ate the morsel and Satan entered into him. Judas should serve as a warning to us not to pretend to be something that we are not. It's also a warning that we are not to waste any opportunities to do good unto him. Remember, Judas asked, why this waste? Remember? Just read it. Yet in truth, it was Judas's life which was a waste. He wasted opportunity. He wasted his soul. In John 17, Jesus called him the son of perdition. You probably know that text. Do you know what that literally means? The son of waste. Isn't that interesting? Now Matthew closes this text. From then on, Judas, the son of waste, began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. He didn't wait, but from that exact moment on, he was looking for his opportunity to get his 30 pieces of silver paid for in the bargain that he made with them. I imagine that he didn't think of this as treachery. He didn't think of this as sending a man to his death. He thought of this as he was going to begin a new life with this cash that he had coming in. He was going to get a new ball rolling in his life, a new opportunity for a lifetime. I think it's quite interesting that none of the gospel writers actually tells us why Judas chose to betray Jesus. Now, we would reason that the most likely re, uh, reason is that Jesus failed to meet Judas' expectations. He thought, as we've been suggested and known for a long time, that he thought Jesus was going to be the political leader that would save Israel from the Romans, seizing power and then becoming king. And when he didn't fulfill Judas's expectation, he was ready to move on. There's a lot of people who reject Jesus because they, the Lord doesn't fulfill their expectations. 
Does Jesus fail to fulfill your expectations? The problem is not Jesus. The problem is you. The problem for Judas was himself. He had the wrong personal expectations of what Jesus Christ was going to do for him in his life. That's sad. That left Judas with only one course of action he could take, and that was to save his own skin and make a little bit of cash on the side. Now, for one moment, imagine that an event from your life was translated into every world's language and taught in conjunction with the rest of Scripture throughout the centuries. That's what happened to this unnamed one. Her experience in honoring Jesus in her worship was to be preached throughout the whole world. What a great honor to her. Let me tell you, those who honor Jesus and worship the Lord and serve him, do good works unto him out of a pure heart, will be rewarded for all of eternity. What honor and blessing awaits you in the life to come? If there are none, then you need to change your ways. Everything you do, all that you eat, all that you say, all that you practice in your life should be done unto Jesus Christ. Not self, not your spouse, not your family, not your community, but done unto Jesus. All our works must be motivated by our love for the Lord Jesus Christ and our desire to serve him. Did you notice, once again, that every time Mary was around Jesus, she sat at, her, at his feet and worshipped him or honored him. And it was always misunderstood by other people. Always. Her sister Mary, Martha under, misunderstood her when she sat at Jesus' feet listening to his teaching. Judas and the other disciples misunderstood her when she anointed Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. Her friends and neighbors misunderstood her when she came out to meet Jesus after Lazarus has died. When we give Jesus first place in our lives, we can expect to be misunderstood, even by those who follow him and criticized by them. True worship of the Lord puts us in direct conflict with others, including believers. So we might ask, why did Jesus follow? Why did Judas follow Jesus for three years? Listen to his word, share in his ministry, and then turn on him? Well, that's up to opinion. But one thing is for certain. Judas was not the victim of his own circumstance, uh, of circumstances. It was a matter of personal choice. True worship must have its emphasis on Christ. True worship must not be done to meet one's personal needs However, that's defined. True worship is an act of loving and expressing that love to Jesus Christ. We can learn from this that the gospel is the gospel of grace and not a gospel of works. Finally, all betrayal of the Lord emanates from the world, the flesh, and the devil. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we are so grateful for the record of Matthew. Help us, Lord, to understand it, to apply it rightly, to live godly in this present world as we await the return of our Savior. Help us, Lord, 
to be obedient servants who worship you and serve you doing good works unto Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.